You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Hi family, how are you? Glad you're here. We have got miles to go before the sun sets today, so buckle up. Apparently this is one of those things that I'm particularly passionate about because first service walked out of here and went, wow. I really care about what we're going to talk about. We are in the last week of Jesus's life and we are on Thursday. So remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Tuesday of the last week of Jesus's life. And we had these like four chapters, uh, Matthew 23, 24, 25, and 26. And then last week we talked about Wednesday and we had exactly zero text about Wednesday. So we talked about the silences of God. What do we do with silences of God? Today, we are on Thursday, and this is a huge day in the week, and we have John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 to cover. We're not gonna. Um, But... What I do want to do is I want to pull out a theme that keeps showing up. Now in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, Jesus is at the Last Supper with his guys, the Passover meal, and he is preparing them to be without him. He knows he's leaving, and he's trying to give them kind of the last words that uh, he can give them to encourage them, to help them stay the course, all that stuff. So uh, this, is, this is really important, and everything that he says is bent around this one like really critical theme that if we don't get this right, none of the rest of it matters. And so uh, we're going to read a little bit of this. You guys ready to go to work? You guys slept in this morning. What's, there, what's your problem? You know when I preach, it's like sitting in an exit row in an airplane. Need a verbal response. Right, so if if I say, are you ready to go to work? You say, absolutely. All right, let's read John 13. When he'd gone out, now who's that? Judas the betrayer, okay? Now it's really important that we point Judas out as the betrayer because if you give this story to any Orthodox Jew, they will never say Judas was the one who betrayed him. They'll say Peter's the betrayer. And so it's really important that the text keeps pointing out that he is Judas the betrayer, and then it moves on. Like it keeps saying that again and again and again, because we got to know that. And the reason is because what they'll say is, Peter absolutely denies his rabbi. Like just flat out bold face denies him. That's the ultimate level of betrayal. What Judas is trying to do is to force Jesus' hand. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Judas is trying to, like he's a zealot. He's trying, to, he's trying to get God to buy into his own agenda. At least he has a noble intent. He's misguided, but he has a noble intent. Peter just boldfaced rejects his rabbi. So the, here's a question. Why then is Judas the betrayer and Peter isn't? Here's why. Because Judas doesn't see the hope of forgiveness and Peter does. I got good news for you. You are going to completely blow it. You are. Not me. You are. You're going to blow it. And you're going to blow it again and you're going to blow it again and you're going to blow it again. Guess what? Jesus always extends hope to you. And if you're willing to take hold of it, that doesn't give you permission to just do whatever you want and expect God's blessing but understand that we are going to make mistakes 
And Jesus's love and grace for you never runs out. That's good news. So Judas is the betrayer here, even though Peter's the one that really rejects him. So when he'd gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, I want to camp on this next statement here for just a little bit. A new commandment I give you. This is really, really significant. If Jesus is about to give us a new commandment, we better pay attention. Because this isn't optional. This isn't like, and I'm going to give you a nice anecdotal platitude that maybe you should think about in some of your devotional time sometime. It'll be nice and make you feel all warm and fuzzy and squishy inside. This is a demand. If you're going to follow Jesus, I demand that you do it this way. That's what he's saying. This is a commandment. And if you're like, well, I don't like being controlled like that. If this was your problem, you could get over it. Like you, you don't get an option on this. He's God and you're not. Therefore, whatever he says next is critically important. A new commandment I give you. Check it out. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have convincing apologetic arguments. How am I doing? This drives me bonkers. The church is trying so hard in our culture to be right. And we've lost what it means to be godly. We have truth this and truth that, truth project, truth, and I'm right and you're wrong, and oh my gosh, you're so, you're an idiot. It drives me crazy. Jesus said that the world will know who Jesus is by how you treat them. End of the story. Nothing more and nothing less. And this is hard. This whole love thing, it's difficult. It's not easy. And, and you can sit there all you want to and go, well, you're just saying you can believe whatever you want. You know what? Stop making excuses about why you don't have to follow what Jesus said and just do it. This is a demand. A new commandment I give you, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you better love one another just the way that I've loved you. Now he's going to go on and unpack that whole thing about love, right? Like love your enemies, love your waitress that gives you poor service. I'm sorry, but if you, if you call yourself a Christian and you get poor service at a restaurant and so you're like, well, I'm not giving her a tip because she needs to learn the value of good service. You're in sin. That's a sin. I'm not, like, I'm so tired of Christians acting like they're the law police. No, you're not. Your job is to love people well. Let somebody else take care of the truth thing. That's not how the world's going to know who Jesus is. 
oh, that grocery store clerk, they said the wrong thing, or they didn't pack my groceries right, or they didn't bag my... Who cares? There's never a point to... Maybe they Treat them as an enemy. Treat... I can't believe you bagged my stuff wrong. I'm treating you as an enemy. How does Jesus say to treat our enemies? Love them, bless them, and do not curse them. That's how Jesus says to do it. And if you don't do that, you're in sin. I'm so tired of the church thinking that the gift that they give to the world is to try to point fingers and show them where they're wrong. The way that the world will know who Jesus is is by the way that we love one another. Period. End of story. That person that cuts you off in traffic, Lord Jesus, help me. That person, you're driving down the highway and that person goes right by you? Okay, first of all, that was probably me. And secondly... You know, there's, listen, every piece of me but my right foot is getting into heaven. I'm just saying, uh, I don't know if there's enough grace to cover my accelerator foot. But other than that, you know that there's a piece of you when that person drives by. You know, you want like, oh, I, I, I mean, this, like I drive fast. This guy blew by me one day and I go down the road about a mile and a half and he's pulled over right, by a highway patrolman, I'm like, <laughs> right, no, that's sin, like, we laugh about it, but it's not, that's not Jesus at all, it's not Jesus at all, and we, we try to justify the places where we think it's not a big deal, but the problem is, you don't have the right to ever do anything other than love people, now, that doesn't mean that you have, like, no opinion, love isn't blind acceptance, that's not what love is. You can have boundaries. You can have standards. You can have convictions. But you never get the right to mistreat people in the name of their wrongness. Let me show you where you're wrong and I'm right. I got a friend, and um, this isn't going on the internet, so I'm going to talk about him. Um, <laughs> the... He, he's like, believes that the church has really been misguided in preparing um, teenagers to step into the college world. And his answer is that the way that we do that is they need to understand the apologetic argument for their faith. You know what apologetics is? Christian evidence is, right? Like, let's prove our faith. Here's the proofs of our faith. Here's the deal. I'm all for understanding apologetics and all that stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But let me be real honest with you. The world doesn't care if Christianity is true. It just wants to know if it works. And that seems to be the thing that we really can't put on display well. Because we talk about the love of Christ and then fight like the devil for the things of God. There's no place for that in the Christian life. And we want to point fingers at every place that we think is wrong, those liberal commie. Like, let's watch Fox News and get people around us that all agree with us and be happy. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. I just want you to know, I just want you to know, Jesus is not a Republican. I got good news for you. He's not a Democrat either. But, um, 
But like we get so, like how can you even be a Christian and vote that way? Well, that's none of your dang business. Why don't you be Jesus and love people well? Like it drives me bonkers that we believe that we're honoring the Lord by doing anything less. This is a demand of those who call themselves Christians. Period, end of story, you don't have an option. Well, you do have an option. You don't have to love people well, but don't call yourself a Christian. I mean, you can, you can choose. You're free to choose, but you're not free to choose the benefits of Christianity without also taking on the responsibility. If you want the blessings of following Jesus, you also need to follow him in a way that honors him well. And here's how he says to do it. Love one another just as I've loved you. No big deal. You also, you are to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Which, by the way, spoken like a true Christian, um, I'll do anything you ask for me, Lord. Jesus is like, Peter, shut up. <laughs> it's in subtext. Uh, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Like, Jesus is like, Peter, like you can talk about wanting to lay your life down all the time, all you want to, but when push comes to shove, what do you do? You can talk about your truth until you're blue in the face, but what do you do with your life? If you want to talk about the truth of God and I believe in Jesus, but you want to act like a jerk to everyone around you, you're in sin. It's sin. We're like, I know how you know. What about having a bad day? Listen, when you're having a bad day, still sin, but people forgive you for it. But don't use that as an excuse to get past the fact that on the daily, you're a jerk. You don't have the right to treat people any other way because your life is not yours. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That's what the Bible says. How do we honor him? Love people just as he loved us. If we don't get this part right, it's not just that the church becomes irrelevant, but the world doesn't know who he is anymore. Now the question is, how? How do we do that? Because that's hard. Am I right? Like, that's hard. I, I, I don't, I mean, I, yes, theoretically, I want to love you well, but I kind of want you to pay for what you did wrong, um, especially when you wronged me. Like, that's, that would be the loving thing for you to do is to suffer for what you did wrong to me. We do this. Well, Jesus is going to, a little bit further on in the conversation, he's going to unpack for us how. Check this out. John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. You guys are familiar with this passage, right? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Terrible translation here. Some translations say cut off, which is an even worse translation. The Greek word here is the word iro. Let me hear you say iro. Iro means, it's used 101 times in the New Testament. One time for every Dalmatian. 
It means to lift up. That's what the word means. Now, here's the picture. The picture is of a vineyard, right? Now, in our mindset, we drive by like a wine vineyard or something like that today. What we see is kind of the, the fence with the trellis and, and the vines are kind of um, attached to the cables and they're stretched out and they kind of like roll like that. Well, back in, in this time period, they didn't have that kind of a system. The grapevines just kind of grow up out of the ground and then they kind of branch out. They look just like a big, like a shrub. They look like a big shrub. I've actually been able to see this. It's really cool. Um, in Cappadocia, which is in um, central Turkey, biblical Asia Minor. And uh, I took some great pictures of it. If you're interested in seeing it, I'll show them to you sometime. But uh, what happens is the vine grows up, the, the trunk grows up, and then the vines come out and the branches actually come out of that. Now, sometimes the branches will get heavy or they'll, they'll grow too far too fast, which there's all kinds of applications there, but they get a bunch of grapes on them and it's too heavy for them to hold. It's not, the, it's not strong enough. So it starts to sag and it lays on the ground. And if the grapes touch the ground, they get a fungus in them and they don't produce, the grapes are nasty. They're not worth eating. You kind of have to throw that fruit away. It's not really fruit worth keeping. And so what they'll do is they'll take a stick or a rock or something like that and prop the branch up so that the fruit stays off the ground. This is a very common practice. So we're in Cappadocia. Now Cappadocia, if you ever want to see bizarre landscape, Google pictures of Cappadocia. It looks like um, the South Dakota Badlands, like these you know, it's just, it just, it's weird. It's, it's beautiful in its own way, but it's weird looking. And down these valleys of these rolling ridges, they have these vineyards. Well, we're hiking and we are hiking out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we are lost out in the middle of nowhere and we're hiking along and all of a sudden I had, this is a true story. I had on a pair of Washington state shorts. I had the, lo the cougar logo on them and all of a, out of nowhere, I hear go Cougs. We're in the middle of nowhere. And, it, and I was like, who? This guy from McCall. The guy lives in McCall, Idaho. I see him in Cappadocia, like, like you do, you know. And we we're out in the middle of nowhere, and we're crossing over these ridges, and we're trying to get our bearings, and it's really hard to follow. The geography's all windy and twisty, and we, I mean, we're completely out there. Well, we come over this ridge, and we see a guy working in his vineyard. And I'm like, I want to talk to him because I have so many questions because of this passage. So we run down there and I ask him through the interpreter, like if a branch touches the ground and I actually got a picture in his vineyard, he's got one with a stick that's propping it up. It's really cool. Um, so I said, in a vineyard, when, this, when it touches the ground, do you cut it off? And he was like, you know, because I through the, through the, uh, our guide was translating for us and the guy goes, no, and, and, I, and so I was like, he said, no, he would never do that. I said, well, why not? Why wouldn't he do that? So he says, which is my version of Turkish, the guy kind of chuckles and he says something back and the, the guide says to me, I think the translation is, that would be stupid. <laughs> you would never cut it off, never. As long as there is life in the branch, you never cut it off. You lift it up so that it can produce fruit. 
Now the question is, what's the fruit we're trying to produce? Well, let's read on a little bit and see if we can't figure that out. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. I'd love to have a sermon on that, but we don't have time. To make him even more fruitful. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do a little bit and you'll have to work really hard at it. But I mean, you can accomplish some few things. I mean, it'll be all right. It won't be, it won't be awesome, but it won't be all that bad. Right? Now, apart from Jesus, you can't produce anything. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch that withers. By the way, whole nother, I got great pictures of that too, but it's another sermon for another day. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now let's stop right there for just a second and say this. What a lot of people say is, well, I prayed for something and God didn't give it to me. Therefore, I must not be close enough to God because he didn't give me what I want. Let me tell you what this verse means. You abide in Christ and Christ's word abides in you. And it's not just that he'll give you whatever you want, it's that he will change your heart so that you want what he wants. So that it doesn't matter anymore what you want. The only thing that matters is what Jesus wants. Big difference. Let's read on. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now how do we prove? According to John 13, how do we prove that we're his disciples? By loving one another. Let's see if that shows up again. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Does this sound vaguely familiar? Greater love has known than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You want to know how you show your fruit? You want to know how we know that you're abiding in the vine? You want to know how we know that you've spent time with Christ? You love us well. You want to know how the world knows that you are with Jesus? By how you treat him. That's the fruit of abiding in the vine. How do we do this love thing? Because it's hard, right? Especially with enemies. How do we do this love thing well? We have to abide in the vine. And the love is the fruit of our relationship with Christ. Every single time, there is no exception. So we're called to love. This is the demand. And this is how. We do it by abiding in Christ. So that his word begins to abide in us and it changes us. If you're not loving the people around you well, it's not a problem with the people around you. It's a Jesus problem between you and him. You got to get that right. But they're really mean. I know, like hitting you in the back with whips and stuff. They're so hard to deal with. I know, like spitting in your face. I'm sure it's the same. Right? Because Jesus modeled what it looks like to love people well in that. 
Now the question is why? Why would we do that? Good news. Same conversation. In John 17, what happens is that they, they have their meal, they finish their meal, and they walk out of the house and they go to a place that is a garden and is traditionally known as what's called the Garden of Gethsemane. There's only one problem. There is no Garden of Gethsemane. That place doesn't exist. There is a garden and there is a Gethsemane, a Gethsemane, which is an olive press. It is there and there is a garden there, but there's no Garden of Gethsemane. That doesn't exist, but come with me to Israel. We'll stand real close at least to where this conversation actually happened. We can be within 50 yards pretty easy. Um, so uh, Jesus begins to pray in John 17. Remember he goes out and he's like, yeah, I'm going to go pray. And he prays. And in John 17, we have his prayer recorded. Now he spends four verses praying for himself, the next 16 verses praying for his disciples, and then the rest of the chapter praying for you, which is cool because Jesus prayed for you. And I wonder if we versed out our prayers, would it be the same ratio? You know, four verses praying for us and then 16, 20 verses praying for other people. I don't know. Just maybe a thought. But in John 17, I want to show you why. Why do we have to love one another well? Here's why. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Why do we do this? Why do we love people well, even when it's hard, even when it's inconvenient, even when they're wrong? Why do we do this? We do this because it tells the world a particular story about who our God is. It shows them who he is. And what we want to do is convict the world of sin, but they need to know where they're wrong. I got good news for you. That is not your job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. And he does it better than you do. But we want to save all these people. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And if we love them, we got to save, we got to go out and save them, save them, save, right? Good news. That's not your job. That's Jesus's job. And he does it better than you. Just do what you're called to. Now, as we tie that into Lent, the question is, what needs to die in you so that resurrection power can be experienced in your life more fully? Because it's not, the, the truth of loving people well isn't something that we push back on. It's the reality. It's the actual boots on the ground of this infringed on my own personal entitlement. It infringed on what I believe, how, on how I need to be treated. I deserve better. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're neat, but you're not that great. And here's the thing, like we can go, well, that just sounds like you're taking away everybody's self-esteem. We're all just supposed to feel better. No, it's actually, it's actually exactly the opposite. The only people who can actually lay their lives down and love others well are those who are absolutely secure in knowing exactly who they are before God. If you don't know that, you don't have the power to love other people well. 
So this isn't about you feeling bad about yourself. This is about you feeling amazing about who God is. That gives us the freedom to be able to love others well. And with that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. So here's how we're going to do this. There's going to be some buckets that are going to come down the middle. You can send those to the outside with those cards that Thad talked about earlier. Send those, and then they'll pick them up here on the outside. But we're also going to pass out communion. We take communion every week as a church family. If you're new with us, we have an open table. What that means is anybody that's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. But we want you to hold the elements till the end, and we'll take them all together. Now, while they're passing that stuff out, I want to work through a few implications. Here's, here's what I know. Maybe you're sitting there going, you know, I had this really bad conversation this week where I didn't represent Christ well. And maybe you're thinking, I got to go make that right. Um, if that's where the Holy Spirit is touching your heart with this message, that is wonderful. It, wherever the Lord is, is moving in you with what you've shared is good. What these implications are, are things that as we work through the message, we thought were particularly important to take home with us. So uh, when we say implications, what we mean is the really important stuff to me. <laughs> so it may not be important to you, but um, you know, if you're not preaching. So it doesn't matter. Um, can I have one of those? Thanks. Thank you. Little Miller guy right there, serving communion. Love those guys. Love me some Miller family. Implication number one. We're called to lay our lives down for other people, not just in death, but in how we live each day. And this is a really important question for us to ask ourselves. If we're willing to die for Jesus, are we willing to live for him? I think dying for Jesus is way easier than living for him. Because anybody can make that one moment of sacrifice where we step in there and take the bullet or whatever. The question is, will you live for him? Will you live for him in a way that honors what he's asked you to do? And this then takes us back to our Lent conversation. What is it in you that needs to die so that you can? Fear, insecurity, entitlement. I believe I deserve something. Whatever it is, it needs to be done away with. Second implication. The only way to have the strength to pull that off is to stay connected to Christ every day. And I just want to say this about, you know, spending time with the Lord. I love spending time with the Lord in his word. I love spending time in prayer. I love spending time in small groups talking about all those things are important. I just want to challenge you. Like when you came in today, did you come in prepared today to worship? Did you come in ready for God to speak to you? Did you come in having done some pre-work so that when you came in, what a lot of people do when they come to church is they expect church to break through something. And I believe that God can break through the hardest of hearts. I do. But what I know in my own life to be true is when I do the work of plowing the ground of my heart before I show up to God, he always does more. He's, are you prepared? Did you come ready to worship him? One of the things I love about worship, and I would encourage you to spend significant time each day, 20, 30 minutes a day, worshiping God. And here's why. For me... 
what I know is that very quickly in my life, I can speak these truths about God and believe them. And then I can get out and get distracted and, and forget. Like I need the truths about who God is always on the forefront of my brain. And I love singing worship songs that call out the nature of God. I love to, to sing these songs that we sang this morning. Um, that I'm sweetly broken, that I'm wholly devoted, that in awe of the cross, I stand. Like the, 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 these are phrases that like, yeah, you know, yeah, that's true. It's true, it's true. But what I, th what I find particularly significant about music that's different than other mediums is that music is the one thing that we know passes the subconscious and goes, or passes the conscious brain and goes directly into the subconscious. So music, worshiping God, actually establishes those truths deeper in our brain. And I need to have that daily because then I make decisions based on the truth of the nature of God not based on the truth of how I feel in the moment, which by the way is fickle, right? How I feel is fickle, but the truth of who God is never changes. So we need to spend time with Christ, abiding in the vine. I mean, here's the deal. You can get so much worship music on the internet for free. You don't even have to pay for it. Like, it's available to you if you're willing to. It's not hard. Play it in the bathroom while you're getting ready and sing loud. I wake my, my son, um, Gabe, who's 17. His bedroom is directly above the bathroom that I use in our house. I wake him up every morning singing. And I'm sure he's thinking, man, what a beautiful noise that comes out of the bathroom <laughs> at four in the morning, right? But to me, what I've learned in my own life is that if I don't make this a daily part of my life, if I don't make it a daily part of my life, it is not long before I get sucked right back into the same old habits that I've been trying to kill for days, for years. Here's the thing about old habits. They don't die, but you can replace them. You just have to never let the things that you replaced them with go away because then you pick right back up on your old habits again. Um, yeah, you, you got to prepare yourself. You got to stay in the vine. Last implication. The effect of laying down our lives is that Jesus works through us and the world sees him for who he really is. Um, I just finished a book called Blessed Are the Misfits, which I absolutely loved and you need to read. Um, it's a wonderful book. And what he says in that book is, in Ephesians, it says the finally brothers... Um, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is praiseworthy, um, whatever is a good reputation, think about these things, right? And he really camps on this thing about whatever is true. And I think that we've missed a piece of truth that's really significant. We need to think about whatever is true, like what's true generally, but we need to spend time thinking about what's true about what God says you are. What's true about what God says other people are? What's true about who they are in him? Because if that person, even if they're my enemy, if that person is a precious creature to God, then they have to be a precious creature to me too. Because that's how I put my God on display. And to do anything else is sin. 
it, it's gonna take us, and I love taking communion every week because it's this call back to being reminded of how we actually get this agenda of bringing the heaven crashing into earth accomplished. We get it accomplished by laying our lives down, not by pushing our own rights. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup. And he says, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you for this amazing call to partner with you in showing the world how much you love them. Lord, give us the courage to face down the holes in our own soul that keep us from being able to love others well. Thank you for making this a demand and not an option. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.